0: where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Friday, July 22nd, we are studying Psalm 105. The psalmist praises the Lord for all that he has done, recounting quite a bit of Old Testament history along the way. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor David Vandercook. Pastor Vandercook serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in North Little Rock, Arkansas, and Shepherd of Peace Lutheran Church in Maumelle, Arkansas. Pastor Vandercook, welcome back to Sharp Brian. Great to be here. As we get started today, Pastor Vandercook, let's talk a little context. What should we know as we prepare to look at Psalm 105 today?
1: Yeah, as far as where else this figures into scripture, David pretty much directly quotes the first 15 verses of this psalm on the occasion of the ark being brought into Jerusalem. Uh, we don't know the, the precise authorship for this psalm. Uh, as as with many of the psalms, this is an anonymous, uh, the, the authorship is anonymous with it, but um uh, but it is a. it ha- does have some very uh, common things in it when it comes to the Psalter. Uh, for example, that opening phrase, O oh, give thanks to the Lord, occurs in uh, three other psalms as well, 107, 118, and 136, um, kind of collectively called the, the Hodu Psalms because of the Hebrew word that is translated to, O oh, give thanks to the Lord. Um, and this psalm and the next psalm, Psalm 106, are are really tied together. As we'll see going throughout this psalm, this psalm is going to recount a lot of the deeds that God did for his people from the time of the establishment with the covenant with Abraham, all the way through their conquest of the promised land. And 106 focuses more on the people's failings during that whole time. Uh, And so the two kind of go together. One talks about everything that God did to set them up. And 106 talks about how uh, everything that God um, uh, did, but yet in spite of what God did for them, they they disobeyed him. And it's a Psalm where they repent of that, uh, but yet still acknowledges the fact that God, uh, cares for them nonetheless, uh, and continues to keep his end of the bargain, so to speak, he continues to keep the covenant, even if his people break it. Uh, so there's really that kind of that contrast between the two, 105 being God's actions, 106 being the people's failures. Uh, but this one really gets into very specific stuff that God did for the people of Israel, again, from the time of the covenant he makes with Abram, all the way to uh, the conquest of the promised land.
0: All right, so we've got quite a bit of text today here in Psalm 105. It's 45 verses long, lots to look at as we get started. So Psalm 105. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of all his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles, and the judgments he uttered. O offspring of Abraham, his servant, children of Jacob, his chosen ones. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers his covenant forever, the word that he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant that he made with Abraham, his sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying, To you I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. When they were few in number, of little account, and sojourners in it, wandering from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another people, he allowed no one to oppress them. He rebuked kings on their account, saying, Touch not my anointed ones, do my prophets no harm. When he summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread, he had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph who was sold as a slave. His feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron. Until what he had said came to pass, the word of the Lord tested him. The king sent and released him. The ruler of the peoples set him free. He made him lord of his house and ruler of all his possessions, to bind his princes at his pleasure and to teach his elders wisdom. Then Israel came to Egypt. Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham, And the Lord made his people very fruitful and made them stronger than their foes. He turned their hearts to hate his people, to deal craftily with his servants. He sent Moses, his servant, and Aaron, whom he had chosen. They performed his signs among them and miracles in the land of Ham. He sent darkness and made the land dark. They did not rebel against his words. He turned their waters into blood and caused their fish to die. Their land swarmed with frogs, even in the chambers of their kings. He spoke, and there came swarms of flies and gnats throughout their country. He gave them hail for rain and fiery lightning bolts through their land. He struck down their vines and fig trees and shattered the trees of their country. He spoke, and the locusts came, young locusts without number, which devoured all the vegetation in their land and ate up the fruit of their ground. He struck down all the firstborn in their land, the firstfruits of all their strength. Then he brought out Israel with silver and gold, and there was none among his tribes who stumbled. Egypt was glad when they departed, for dread of them had fallen upon it. He spread a cloud for a covering, and fire to give light by night. They asked, and he brought quail, and gave them bread from heaven in abundance. He opened the rock, and water gushed out. It flowed through the desert like a river for he remembered his holy promise and Abraham his servant. So he brought his people out with joy, his chosen ones with singing, and he gave them the lands of the nations, and they took possession of the fruit of the people's toil, that they might keep his statutes and observe his laws. Praise the Lord. That is Psalm 105. Wow, what a what a journey through through much of the Old Testament history. So, Pastor Vanderkirk just can you give us a brief outline of this song there's so much here what can just give us a a broad overview before we dig into specific sections
1: yeah verses one through six really serve as an introduction um kind of just imploring the people that we should give thanks to god we should call upon his name we should make known His deeds among the people uh this is part of what it means to um uh to be his people is to proclaim what he has done Uh, and we see this echoed a lot in in uh, our liturgical life, in particular, uh, in the in our introits and also in our um, uh, some of our biblical canticles as well that we have in the divine service that that really quote this first portion of it that just in general say, "Hey, God's done a lot of stuff for us. We should recognize this, and we should also proclaim to those around us what God has done." So that's really those first six verses, and then the next. Uh, Verses 7 through 11 deal with the covenant that God made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then 12 through 15 is going to talk about the period between that and leading up to uh, the time that the children of Israel spend in Egypt, the fact that God continued to preserve them. And protect them while they were living as kind of a nomadic people, not really a nation at that point, but just a family uh, or just a very large family, how God preserved them through that time period. And then uh, verses um, 16 through 22 speak of the preservation for Israel that's there as a result of God's actions through Joseph in Egypt, um, which we read about, especially in the second half of the book of Genesis. And then from there, we end up uh, talking about the Exodus. And uh, that's where we get a lot of detail about the 10 plagues, especially, or at least we'll get into it when we get there, but at least as many of the plagues as as the Psalm speaks of. And then uh, ultimately, we have Israel being uh, protected during their wilderness wanderings and then into the promised land, uh, how God gives them um, uh, the land there for which they did not work and the produce of that land for which they did not have to prepare for anything else. So, so yeah, that's kind of the, the, uh, the, the full outline of it there and, and really end up going all the way back through their history up to the present time when this, this psalm would have been used in their worship life.
0: All right, so there's the the grand sweep of Psalm 105, and again, just by way of reminder, if you go on into Psalm 106, which we're not covering here on Sharper Iron, but if you do, you'll see much of that same history recounted. Psalm 105 gives us the perspective of God's gracious action for the people. Psalm 106 will give us the perspective of the people's rebellion against God and need for repentance. So, if occasionally things in Psalm 105 seem a bit I don't know, rose-colored, maybe isn't quite the right way of, of looking at it, but it. Psalm 105 is going to focus on God's gracious action and isn't always going to give us, we know the rest of the story where the people rebelled against this. So, so that's the perspective we've got in Psalm 105. Now, as, as you said, Pastor Brandon Cook, the first several verses call upon us to give thanks to the Lord, to call upon him, to sing his praises. Now, what, what's the nature of the praise that Psalm 105 directs us? You know, we, we talk about you praise God. Well, what does, that, what, does that actually, what does that actually mean in the context of this psalm?
1: Well, in this psalm, it's praising Him for something specific, which I think is probably the the important thing we talk about praising the Lord. It's good that we praise the Lord, but we need to know why we're doing it. Uh, and this psalm is going to get into the specifics of that. You know, at the end of that that section or toward the end of it, in verse five of the opening there, the reason is given. Why are we praising the Lord? Well, because we're remembering the wondrous works that he has done. We're remembering his miracles, we're remembering the judgments that he's uttered uh, and so forth. The fact that he set us apart as his people. Uh, so it's not just kind of a, a general, we we praise him just because it's the right thing to do or something like that. It is the right thing to do, but there's a reason that we do. And we're going to actually now recount here, here's the, here's the rationale for why we are going to praise him. It's kind of like how whenever we pray a collect in the church, we start off our collects with a rationale. Why is it that we're asking God for this thing? Well, because he's done this in the past, and we know his character, and therefore we're going to ask him for this thing. And the same thing is true here. We're going to praise God because we can point back to this or that specific action and say, this is a good reason for us to give thanks and praise to God.
0: And and not only is there the the reason for the praise, but then I think Psalm 105 really helps us with the content of the praise. You know, I mean when if you if you were to read Psalm 105, maybe just verses like seven through the end, it's a lot of it's a lot of history, but that's actually called praise here in Psalm 105, which I, I think is a, a nice reminder in our day and age that to praise God is more than just saying God is great. I mean that there's a place for that. Don't misunderstand. But but to actually praise God is to there's a content to it it's to tell other people what he actually did and so this recounting of history that's a praise of God I mean just maybe that's a a new way to think of the Apostles Creed you know, We we confess the Apostles Creed well that's that's actually praising God when you do that you're telling what he's done there's content to it
1: yeah and it's that's the idea of bearing witness to something it's that uh, you're 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 simply. Uh, recounting it, but you're recounting it for the purpose of bringing glory to God uh, and, and yeah, as you said, telling other people what he's done. That's, you know, I, I know that a lot of uh, churches, mine included, from time to time use the the, the post-communion canticle, thank the Lord and sing his praise, tell everyone what he has done. Uh, and that's, you know, after we receive the Lord's Supper, we go forward out into the world and um, part of our vocation as Christians in the world is to uh, do just that, is to basically retell what God has done. Yeah.
0: So that's what Psalm 105 calls upon us to do. And, and in particular, the ones who are called upon in verse six are the offspring of Abraham and the children of Jacob. I think it's significant how the Psalm labels those two men of faith. Abraham is the Lord's servant and Jacob is his chosen ones, meaning we're, we're going to be talking about more than just the individual Jacob, but his descendants. Those I, I noticed as I was reading through it that those two terms show up again in verse 26 for Moses and Aaron. They're labeled servant and chosen. so that, And I, I think both of those terms are, are emphasizing God's gracious action there. The idea that we would be a servant, that's God making us his own. And then how did I become God's own? Well, he chose me. I didn't choose him.
1: Yeah. In fact, I went throughout this psalm uh, and, and, and just took a pencil and I underlined as I'm going through in my Bible, the one who is basically all the verbs going through here. And by and large, the doer of the verbs in this entire psalm is God. He's the one that's taking all of the action, doing everything here, uh, which again, shows his nature, uh, the gracious nature of God, that uh, that he is the one who takes these people to be his own. He is the one providing for them. He's the one choosing them and so forth, as you said.
0: So then we come to, well, what is this that God has done? And, and we're going to start with Abraham. So take us into verses, what,
1: 7 through 11. Yeah, it starts out uh, talking about God remembering his covenant. Again, he's the one remembering. And the covenant he made with Abraham. And, and, of course, we see that in the book of Genesis in chapter 12 initially, where God calls Abraham um, essentially from his idolatry and into um, uh, being His the one who would ultimately be a blessing to all nations or through whose offspring all nations would be blessed. And then that same promise is repeated in kind of different ways in Genesis 15 and Genesis 17 as well, where he makes more specific promises to Abraham, uh, you know that yes, the one that will the one through whom this blessing of all nations will come is not going to be a servant in your household. it's actually going to be your son. And this land that you're on right now, you know, the land of Canaan, this one day will be the land that your offspring will inhabit. And so forth. So he kind of God zeroes in on that promise to Abraham. Uh, what's what's he makes there? That that covenant that he makes there with Abraham and the covenant of circumcision comes through in that that period of time as well. And so you know, after he makes that covenant with Abraham, you know, the psalmist moves on to in in verse second half of verse nine that he also made you know made this promise again to Isaac and he confirms it in Jacob and you know we can find that in. in further on in Genesis and 26 and Genesis 27 or 28. Um, so we get this continual uh, covenant that is made there with them. Uh, and, you know, specifically, it even gives a a quote here to God or attributes a quote to him saying to you, I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. So, uh, so yeah, that, that first section there of, of kind of recounting the history of God's people seven through 11 recounts that covenant that he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. To the quote
0: that's given there in verse 11 of, of what God actually said to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the, the psalmist emphasizes the promise of the land. And as you, as you were talking about the covenant that God made, you were emphasizing the promise of the offspring, which is what I would do too why, why the promise of the land? Why, what's the significance of that in particular?
1: Well, I think if we're reading it in the context of this if this psalm, first of all, as, as you go throughout the psalm, there is an emphasis on the land. Uh, and the reality is that the people at this point in time that they're, they're making use of this psalm, in particular, we think of David using it when the Ark of the Covenant is brought into Jerusalem, there is kind of this emphasis of, of the land here, but uh, I think we probably just can't separate the two, quite frankly. There's, uh, you know, at this point in time, the land uh, is is part of that covenant and it'd probably be wise for us not to rip the two apart. Of course, now, I guess, you know, today, obviously, we, we emphasize, uh, we de-emphasize the land as we know that Jesus himself says, my kingdom is not of this world, but the land plays an important role of getting to the Messiah uh, in that the people that have to be preserved in order for us to get to Jesus have to have somewhere to live. Uh, And that land is also a sign of God's uh, providential care of his people.
0: Hmm. So for for us then as Christians, when we think about this fulfillment of the land promise, how does, how is Christ, I mean, well, that's what we would say. Christ is the fulfillment of this promise. How How is he that? How does Christ fulfill this?
1: You mean as far as how does he fulfill that promise of the land? Is that what you mean? Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. I think you could certainly look at that in terms of, of the church. We speak of the church being the new Israel uh, and the place where we go to receive uh, the gifts of God, where He meets us uh, now. Yeah, I mean, we don't look at the the church and say that this this property is you know, or this building that we use for worship is um, you know somehow that that God delivered it to us from from some foreign entity or something like that, and we just kind of uh, you know took it over like what happened in the conquest of the Promised Land. But but we have this promise of. When God makes this covenant with with his people, it's this idea that this is the place where he's going to meet them. And in particular, again, and I, I hate to keep bringing up the, uh, you know, beating a dead horse on this. But you have, again, David using this psalm whenever the, the Ark of the Covenant is brought into um, Jerusalem. And where is the place where the people of God go to meet him? They go to meet, meet him at the the tabernacle at that point in time. And ultimately, it's going to be the temple. And now today, where is the place where we go to meet the Lord? We go to the to the church, the place where He said, "This is where I am for you." Uh, and so, I think that's really how that ties together: is that you have this this promise of Christ saying, "I've made myself uh, available to you in these specific places, uh, you know, these specific means, and and here is where I can be found."
0: Yeah, very very helpful, Pastor Vanderkoek. That's yeah, so that so that we're not looking to say go to the land of Canaan ourselves but in fact we find these promises fulfilled now in Christ that's that's very well said so as the and and I appreciate you keeping it in the context as well of what David's doing when he's using these verses in in the book of chronicles so as the psalm continues then we're still with the patriarchs with Abraham Isaac and Jacob how does how does the psalm proclaim God's gracious action for them in the next couple of verses
1: yeah, we have this this protection from kind of foreign entities and sometimes foreign kings. Uh, you know, it's not real clear how big of kingdoms we're talking about at this point in history. We're not dealing with empires like the size of, say, the Roman Empire or going further back, like to the Babylonians or the Assyrians or something like that. But we do have these various people groups that... At one time or another, end up in some type of land dispute or water dispute with uh, the patriarchs, with with Abraham in particular, and later on with uh, with Isaac and so forth. You know, so and and the fact is that you have at this point in time, Abraham and his family again are nomads, and so they're not just you know settling in one spot and living there forever. That's what's going to come whenever Israel comes into the Promised Land, but for now they they are uh, nomadic farmers, and so um, Abraham, for example, in Genesis twelve, takes Sarah or Sarai at that point in time, his wife, down to um, Egypt. And he, of course, were, you know, we're familiar with the uh, the lie that he told to the to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, that this is my sister; it's not my wife, and so forth. Uh, and there is a very real risk there, obviously, that once Pharaoh finds out that Abram has lied to him, uh, that he could basically have him taken out, um, uh, you know, take his wife and and have Abram killed for lying to him. But the Lord instead uh, preserves Abraham in spite of his lies. And causes Pharaoh's household to have um, have some, some health issues, and so Pharaoh makes that connection between the two, and basically sends Abram away. A same kind of thing happens again when Abram uh, sojourns to Gerar, where uh, the king there is Abimelech, and uh, when Abraham and Sarah are there, uh, all of the wombs of the household of Abimelech are closed on account of Sarah. And so again, we see God acting in that case to deliver Abraham, even though Abraham wasn't doing, uh, wasn't being completely honest with him. And so then you have again in Genesis chapter twenty-one, Abraham is able to maintain peace with Abimelech and and Phicol, a couple of kings, and Isaac ends up running aground with both those kings again over water rights. But throughout all of this, there's always this risk of um, Abraham's offspring being scattered, destroyed or whatever, but God sees them through everything that happens there. And those are just a few examples. Uh, there's, there's not a lot, honestly, uh, other than that in the book of Genesis that tells us that. But the fact is that obviously they persevered as a family from the time that this covenant's made with Abraham all the way up into uh, their their sojourn down to Egypt, which is where the kind of the next part of this gets gets on. The, the
0: thing that strikes me in that section, and I appreciate you recounting the history from Genesis, but again, at the end of this section in verse 15, you have a quote from what the Lord is saying. And, and here the psalmist says that the Lord said of, of the patriarchs, again, Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, touch not my anointed ones, do my prophets no harm. And it, it's striking to me that the psalm and the, the words of the Lord within the psalm, Give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob the title "Anointed Ones," which I, I believe would be messiahs. But put a little M there, mm-hmm. but and then and then prophets. That's not usually, particularly the prophets. That's not usually how I think of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I, I think of their journeying more and the way that the Lord, you know, took them and preserved them. But to call them prophets just adds another another aspect to their lives that are described there in the book of Genesis.
1: Yeah. I mean, in in a sense, we don't really have prophets yet at this point, uh, at least not officially among the people of God, but you know, you do have people that are, you know, what's the prophet's work. The prophet's work is to declare the word of God. So who are the people declaring the word of God at this point in time? It's, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you know, uh, it's the patriarchs of the family that are doing that. And so you kind of have, uh, you know, in kind of the same sense that we talk about um, the head of the household and a family today, they're, the head of the household and a family is more or less the pastor of his house. Well, he's not actually a pastor, obviously, you know, he doesn't, hasn't been ordained. He doesn't uh, uh, wake up on Sunday morning and and preach the, preach the word and administer the sacraments. But in his own house, his work is to uh, proclaimed the the word of the Lord to his family, and so in much the same way, this is of course prior to to the covenant being made at um, at Sinai with the people of God, and so you don't have yet this structure for God's people of a life of worship. So, what did the life of uh, what did the worship life of the people of God look like prior to Sinai? Well, it consisted of. Um, the patriarchs basically acting as prophets and priests among their own family. That's right. Pre- preaching
0: the word of the Lord to their family, and, and I think to the world around them, we, we see evidence of that as well. So we're looking at Psalm 105 this morning here on Sharper Iron. We need to take a short break, but we'll be right back.
1: Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Friday, July 22nd. We are
0: studying Psalm 105 with Pastor David Vandercook. He serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in North Little Rock, Arkansas, and Shepherd of Peace Lutheran Church in Maumelle, Arkansas. Pastor Vandercook, as we're working our way through Psalm 105, we've come through the section that deals with the patriarchs. And I suppose Joseph is is among the patriarchs, but that's where the, the book of Genesis at least starts to transition. What does Psalm 105 have to say about Joseph and his narrative beginning there in verse 16.
1: Yeah, I always find it interesting that, you know, there's so much of the book of Genesis focuses on Joseph, who's not even technically in the direct line of Christ, because, you know, that, of course, follows Judah. But but yeah, it was, it was really, you know, whenever you get into the second half of Genesis, the focus turns to what's going on with Joseph in Egypt, because Joseph, of course, has these dreams that indicate that at some point in time, his family is going to bow down to him. Basically, he's going to be in this position of authority, uh, and 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 his his father, his mother, and his brothers are all going to to bow down to him and pay homage to him. Uh, and of course, this causes his brothers to hate him. Uh, he's he's kind of the favorite son of his father Jacob, and his brothers sell him into slavery, uh, which we see throughout that how God uses something that was meant for evil to do something good. And so whenever he ends up in slavery in Egypt, and that's really kind of specifically talked about in verses 18 uh, and 19 there, his feet, Joseph's feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron until what he said came to pass. That is, until he interpreted the dreams of Pharaoh that ended up getting him out of, uh, out of prison and ultimately put in charge of taking care of the, the storehouses in Egypt, because God revealed to him through the dreams of Pharaoh that he interpreted that there would be a famine in the land and this, this famine would be great, and would cover even the, his, his brothers and his father uh, up in Israel. Uh, well, what is today Israel, but that then was Canaan, that they would, be, um, they would be affected by this famine as well. And ultimately, Joseph, as the one that's in charge of the food storehouses in Egypt, is able to deliver his own family, is able to uh, preserve them. And so we see how God in this whole section takes something that is meant for evil against Joseph by his brothers and uses it for the preservation of his people.
0: I appreciate the way that you're bringing that out, because that's one thing that stands out to me in this section in verse 16, even where it says he summoned a famine on the land, the he there being the Lord. That's that's not maybe the way we usually think it even more than, you know, I mean, and, and, and then again, in verse 17, he sent a man ahead of them. You know, so that's again, that's the Lord doing it, which that's. Yeah, we're yeah, always that's
1: maybe not the way we usually talk. No, we're always willing to. We always want to talk about things being God things whenever they are uh, good things that happen. Um, you know, obviously good things that happen, but but uh, obviously here we get an instance where God actually causes something that is quite obviously, in some sense, evil to happen uh, or bad to happen to somebody, but uh, He uses it for His purposes.
0: Yeah, and I, I appreciate the way again that Psalm 105 puts that in the context as we've been saying. This is God's grace gracious action. And so even the the famine and the sending of Joseph while they they strike us as I mean they are suffering, yet the Lord does those things for the sake of blessing his people as as we're as we're seeing. So all right, by verse 22 then, the people are now in Egypt and now we start to, to widen our focus. We've been talking a lot about individuals, and now we start to talk more about the nation of Israel. What do we see starting in verse 23?
1: Yeah, well, he the people come into Egypt, and that actually was a, a tremendous blessing to them at that time again because they had no food where they were at. There was a famine in the land and so forth. Um, and they come into Egypt, and they are welcomed with open arms by the Pharaoh at that time uh, and, of course, by Joseph, their, their brother. And... Uh, So it ends up starting out very good uh, and the Lord blesses the people of Israel and it says there makes them fruitful. And of course, we see this as as we read through Exodus chapter one, that indeed the people were fruitful and they were so fruitful that they were um, starting to become a force in Egypt, not that they were, uh, you know, an actual threat. To the people of Egypt, uh, but there is a perceived threat there because Pharaoh and his men start to think, "Hey, if these people decide to overrun us, they really could at this point." Because look at look at how many children they're having. Look at uh, uh, look at how powerful they're becoming. Nothing will be able to stop them. We need to do something about this, and so uh, it seems that it happens rather quickly. That all of a sudden you get this this Pharaoh that does not know Joseph. In other words, you know it's been been quite some time since Joseph was alive, but uh, this Pharaoh doesn't really care about any promise that was made years and centuries ago to uh, Joseph, but rather instead says, uh, we need to do something about this foreign people that is in our land. Uh, we need to stop them from reproducing at the rate at which they're reproducing. But of course, uh, it doesn't work because of the intervention of, of God, once again, who, uh, uh, who uh, continues to bless them and continues to through the actions of the midwives that are there in Egypt, uh, the Israelites mid, midwives, um, uh, causes them to continue to be fruitful and multiply.
0: Now in, in verse 25 there, where it says he turned their hearts to hate his people. So the, the, he would be the Lord again, and their hearts would be the hearts of the Egyptians. Yeah. So it, it seems like once again, we have that same mystery of sorts where something that, that is going to involve suffering for the people of israel the lord's actually the one behind it again
1: yeah and of course we run into that again as you know not not necessarily here in the psalm uh, explicitly but we run into that in the book of exodus quite a bit with the lord hardening the heart of pharaoh Mm -hmm. in order to bring about his purposes for his people as well
0: so again we see the lord's gracious action at work what a again a, a helpful way of of looking at the actions of the Lord in the Old Testament which otherwise might seem fearful to us Psalm 105 helps us to see them in the context of God's grace for his people so in in verse 26 and and following then Moses and Aaron are introduced primarily for the the purposes of what the Lord did through them again the Lord's going to be doing the verbs here and this is where we get into a pretty extended section on the time in Egypt and it looks like primarily the plagues so what are some of the highlights
1: yeah, you know, if we go through Exodus we, and we compare the list of the plagues there to the list that we have here, um, there's, there's a lot of correlation, but there is uh, a difference in the order, first of all. Most of it is, is for the most part in the order, but the first plague that's mentioned here is the plague of darkness. Um, and that's different than what you find if you read through Exodus. The first plague in the book of Exodus is uh, water turned to blood? Mm. Now, of course, that could cause somebody to say, "Okay, which one's the right order?" Well, again, we have to we have to keep these things in context as far as their literary context. And uh, the Psalter is poetry; uh, it's not it's not designed to give you a chronological history, uh, point by point. Quite often, um, uh, rather for that, we should go to Exodus. But the first one mentioned here is the plague of darkness, uh, and when you think about the contrast between darkness and light throughout the scriptures, darkness indicates an absence of God, or uh, you know, just just the depths of of sinfulness and depravity. Uh, and I think that's probably what's going on here. Why the why this why the psalmist chose to put the dark. Uh, the Plague of Darkness first, he wasn't trying to give us a chronological recounting of the plagues, but rather uh, wanted to highlight that one uh, first, because while that is actually the ninth plague of the 10 in Exodus, uh, he lists it first here. Uh, the rest of the plagues, though, I mean, again, go in in order. Uh, there are two that are left out, uh, the Plague of Boils and the Death of the Livestock. Those Neither one of those are mentioned. Uh, but again, that was probably more for poetic reasons than anything else. I certainly don't think that the psalmist was denying that those two happened.
0: <laughs> so with the, the plague of darkness then being put at the beginning for, again, for poetic reasons, you're, you're saying that the, perhaps the reason he does that is to to highlight this, sinful depravity that's there in egypt and so that that brings that out from the outset is that what you're saying
1: yeah i think that's i think that's kind of where where he's going with that you know if you read that account in in exodus of the the um the plague of darkness that's one that almost gets the job done you know so to speak uh pharaoh in fact, initially says the people can go and he, he later changes his mind again, of course, but uh, he changes his mind a bunch of times. But uh, he, he you know, the darkness that is there, it's like a darkness that can be felt, this type of thing. So it's like it's more than just this absence of light. It's, uh, you know, the absence of physical light. This is like a an evil type of, of darkness that's that's brooding over the land here at God's at God's behest but yeah I think that's really kind of what's going on is that it's it is a poetic move to highlight again yeah like as you said the the depravity of sin uh, that's there among the Egyptians
0: now in in verse 28 there's a maybe a curious phrase there because it says and I'm just reading the ESV he sent darkness and made the land dark which is what we've been saying and then the second half of that verse says they did not rebel against his words what is what is that talking about
1: yeah, it's kind of an interesting phrase. And this is kind of one of those things where we don't have a referent, for, uh, at least an obvious referent for the pronoun uh, right off the bat there. what's what? Who's the, basically, who's the, um, uh, who's the they here? Who's the ones that are not rebelling against his words? Um, the most likely thing is that this is Moses and Aaron. They did not rebel against his words. In other words, it's kind of an aside. They... They did what God told them to do. They were told to go into Pharaoh and announce these plagues, and they did just that. Now, there's obviously, there's a variant reading on this. And, and if anybody has the ESV, they probably have this footnote at the bottom that says, in the Septuagint and the Syriac, those two manuscripts omit the word not. And so this would actually say um, they rebelled against his word. Well, then obviously the referent is going to not be Moses and Aaron probably. Uh, rather, it's going to be the uh, um, uh, the Egyptians in that case. They're the ones that rebel against the word of God, uh, which is true. That happened as well. Um, more likely, though, is that we're talking about Moses and Aaron here, that they did not rebel against God's word. And while this is something that happened in the future, we do have instances of Moses and Aaron rebelling against God's word later on in the Israelites' wilderness wandering. And of course, the the people that would be reading the psalm and using the psalm would be familiar with that because they could think about Aaron building a golden calf, for example, uh, while Moses is up on Mount Sinai. Uh, but even more directly with both of them, you have uh, the instance of Moses striking the rock uh, with his staff to bring about water when God only told him to speak to the rock to bring him water. So, uh, And that ends up being the the incident that prevents Moses from actually leading the people into the Promised Land. Uh, so it it could be also referring even more um, indirectly to that that event that anybody who's reading the Psalm would have been familiar familiar with, and saying, "Oh yeah, we remember that Moses and Aaron had this moment of rebellion where uh, it prevented them from from entering the Promised Land along with us."
0: Well, and, and there again, you know, assuming that we're with what we've got in the ESV is, is the text we should go with, they did not rebel against his words being Moses and Aaron in that case. it is, it is a reminder here of how we're seeing God's gracious action at work. And Psalm 106, if we, if we read it next, that's going to remind us of the rebellion of the people in the midst of all this. You know I mean, over yeah. and over again. Yeah, and, and I think you know, if you think about the, the text in Exodus, there are moments during the 10 plagues where the, the people of Israel, is it after the, I can't remember exactly where, maybe it's before the plagues get started, where they tell Moses, what'd you show up for in the first place? We were doing just fine being slaves and now you're making it worse on us. So again, we see the gracious action of God. We know the rebellions there in the background, but the, the gracious action is being highlighted here.
1: Yeah, no, indeed. And that's, uh, yeah, yeah, they, they certainly are. And I think that's right. So it's always, I think, considering psalm 106 along with this psalm is it really gives us the full picture there for sure Mm.
0: now let's talk a little bit about because these are the plagues and and you know i mean here you see the the destruction that was wrought upon egypt during the plagues which is well i guess in in our modern world maybe that sounds a little strange we're talking about praising god and here he's really taking it to his enemies how does this violent action of God, how does that fit into the praise of God's people?
1: Well, I think that it's the acknowledgement that God is doing this for the sake of preserving you. I think it's the same thing we look at, like the the flood, for example. Um, you know, we praise God for his actions at, um, uh, you know, w- with Noah and the ark and the flood, Somebody could look at that, too, and say, well, why are we praising God for destroying his creation? Because that's that's another part of it. Well, uh, the fact is that God is preserving uh, his true church with that. And I think you have to look at it the same way here, is that this is this is the means by which God is preserving his true church. The fact is that the destruction that's brought upon Egypt, or the destruction that's brought upon anybody for the sake of preserving God's people— Really, everybody in the world deserves that destruction. The miracle in all of this is that God actually does preserve somebody rather than just wiping everybody out. Uh, And so, you know, the destruction that we see for Egypt, that could have just as well been done to us or the, you know, the people of Israel could have been done to them uh, because they certainly did not deserve to be preserved either.
0: That's right. And so, again, we see God's grace in action for his own people. As we've been saying, we know they rebel. The fact that the Lord does not do these things to them, that's also his grace in action. Now, as the as the psalm continues, we get Israel's now out of Egypt. What do we see starting there in verse 37?
1: Yeah, 37, they get, they get out of Egypt. And um, not only do they leave Egypt, they actually also plunder Egypt on the way out because they have this, uh, you know, the people of Egypt are so ready to get rid of them after the death of the firstborn, they're handing over all their goods, so they get silver and gold. Some of which is ultimately going to be used to build a golden calf by Aaron, but that's beside the point right now. Um, but they, they're, they're given this, um, this silver and this gold, uh, and, and also the fact that uh, it says in verse thirty-seven, there none among his tribes, uh, there was none among his tribes who stumbled, and Egypt was glad to have him gone. Uh, and so we have, we have that happening there as well. And then we have the, the provisions that God makes for them throughout the time that they are wandering. The cloud that uh, is leading them by day and the fire that leads them by night. Uh, we read of that in Exodus as well. When they're hungry, God provides them with quail and manna. When they're thirsty, God provides them with water. Uh, we also read elsewhere, of course, that their sandals on their feet don't wear out. Their clothes don't wear out that's no small detail. Whenever I come across that, I'm always reminded, yeah, that is kind of a big deal that for 40 years they wandered around and, and their, uh, their clothes and their shoes didn't wear out, you know? So, mm-hmm. so we have this, this continual pro- uh, provision of God that, uh, that things are, things are going to, uh, they're going to make it through this wandering, uh, and he's going to see to it that things that, ordinarily wouldn't work like you'd run out of food eventually or you'd, your clothes would wear out or your shoes would wear out or you run out of water those don't happen to his people
0: hmm. well and and not just for i mean think about how big israel was at this moment in time too i'm not i've, I've seen probably a number of estimates but we're talking millions of people i think at this point that yeah. the lord is is preserving this is no no small feat that the lord is i mean you know just for one person to have a pair of shoes that lasts for them for 40 <laughs> years, let alone a whole nation of people. It's yeah. a, I mean, we put it in that full context. It's just a, such a remarkable thing. I, I do. I love verse, verse 40. It sounds so peaceful. They asked and he brought quail <laughs> and gave yeah. them bread from heaven in abundance. <laughs> yeah. They, they asked nicely, right? Yeah. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> but, but again, you know, this is, this is the psalmist emphasizing God's gracious action for his people. And, and when we put that full context in, in there, that while well, they were complaining. That makes God's grace all the more abundant. I think. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. So okay, so we've got the the wilderness wandering, and then in verse forty two, you have it, he brings it back to Abraham, his servant. It goes back to that promise. I mean, it starts to to wrap things up. How do we see this this psalm then draw to a close?
1: Yeah, there is that that again, bring to remembrance of the covenant. God never forgets his covenant. He he always remembers it. Um, And again, to contrast it with 106, we have how the people in Psalm 106 are constantly forgetting the promises they made to God. But God, no, he remembers. Uh, And you see that there at the end. And then, um, you know, the idea that he brings his people out with joy, brings them out of, uh, of Egypt with joy, out of the wilderness with joy. And ultimately, gives them the land of the nations, uh, the, these various nations that are there in Canaan. And they cross over into uh, the promised land. And again, the land that's there was not land that they uh, developed. Uh, they did not build the cities that are there. Um, they did not plant the vineyards that are there and so forth. But uh, the Lord gives them to them nonetheless. And then the, the final phrase of this psalm, praise the Lord, and that
0: just kind of, how does that wrap everything up?
1: Yeah, the, yeah, right, right. And it's, uh, you know, hallelujah, praise the Lord. Um, again, we started out with, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the um, exhortation to praise at the beginning of this, the first six verses, uh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name. Uh, and so, yeah, it kind of envelopes the whole thing. And it also shifts us into the next Psalm as well, which begins with the words, praise the Lord, uh, begins with the same words, that, uh, this one ends with, uh, and then, and then also has give thanks to the Lord at the beginning again. So yeah, it just, again, uh, reminds them that, uh, for all of this that God has done, it is good and right that we praise him.
0: So we got about five minutes here, Pastor Vandercook, to reflect on, on just a, a very expansive Psalm. You talked, I think you mentioned that this Psalm does show up in the post-communion canticle, thank the Lord and sing his praise. There's some echoes there. How else might a Psalm like this be used in the church for us as Christians still today?
1: Yeah, well, it shows up quite a bit in the, uh, in the, in some, some of the intro it's that we find in our lectionaries, um, And a lot of times that's just kind of those first six verses again of this, this idea that it is good and right that we praise God for what he has done. Uh, and so that's that's very common, um, but uh, but also just in a greater context. While it may not appear in its fullness, Psalm Psalm One Hundred Five, uh, in in there, it again gives us that rationale for why it is that that we're praising God. We're recognizing very specific things that He has done for us, uh, and I think perhaps it also serves as a little bit of an exhortation to us to. To remember some of those details uh, of God's actions for His people, because quite often we can we can look at and, and you know, does God provide for His people? If you ask somebody that question, if you ask a Christian, does God provide? You, you say, oh yeah, you know. Well, what evidence or how do you know that God will provide for you? Uh, and that's where we need to remember the actual specific things that God has done and be able to point to those and say well, I know that uh, God is going to provide for my daily bread because I know that he's done this throughout the history of his people. He has constantly seen to it that they've had uh, food to eat, clothes to wear, uh, you know, good government, good friends, faithful neighbors and the like and all those types of things. We, we see evidence of that in the scriptures and God's actions. Um, you know, so so I think it's, it's one of those things where we're always very, very willing to say God is good and this psalm really gives us a reason to point to and say, yep, that's how I know that he is because I've seen what he's done. It's not based on just uh, feeling an emotion but on actual concrete things that God has done. Uh, but yeah, you know of course that fits into just numerous different times uh, throughout uh, throughout the church's liturgy and the church's life is that we're constantly pointing, back to things that god has done and knowing that he will continue to do the same things uh in the future
0: well and i think that's that's really something that we can take away from this psalm as you're saying the rationale for it and the exhortation to actually remember the things that god has done so that you know when when we praise god it is more than just this nice feeling that he gives us but we're able to point to concrete things that he has in fact done in history for us and and in that way you know i mean psalm 105 can can help inform our hymn writing still today that, I mean, you know, just as the psalmist here goes through the history of God's people. And I suppose maybe up to the point when it was written or, or, or close to it, you thinking of when David used it, the ark being brought to Jerusalem, you know, think about what, what our praise of God might look like if the psalm were composed today or in, a, at a different place, what other deeds of God would be recounted and then i think along with that the how it gets recounted it, it when it gets recounted in psalm 105's style it's done so in in light of what god has done as you pointed out when you start counting the verbs and who the subject of those verbs is over and over it's god this too is a way we praise god still today what has he done for us it, it's all It's just a helpful reminder when we think about our our own hymnody still.
1: Yeah, it is. And I think this is a psalm that you could even say in some sense for us today is incomplete. Um, And what I mean by that is you could add several more verses on and look at God's action, obviously through Christ, uh, and and recount all of that as well, uh, and show how he's a fulfillment of all this stuff that happened here. And, you know, I mean, basically it's doing what the what the um, what the apostles did throughout the book of acts pointing back to the word of God and saying, Hey, all of this pointed to Christ. And now, now we see the fulfillment of it, you know?
0: Mm. Yeah, that's right. So that, that our preaching today and our praise today centers on what God has done for us in Christ and, and in him, we still sing our Alleluia as Psalm 105 directs us to do. Pastor David Vandercook serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in North Little Rock, Arkansas and Shepherd of Peace Lutheran Church in Maumelle, Arkansas, helping us today with Psalm 105. Pastor Vandercook, thanks for being our guest today.
1: It's a pleasure to be with you.
0: I am your host here on Sharper Iron pastor timothy apple of grace lutheran church in smithville texas give thanks to the lord call upon his name make known his deeds among the peoples as we recount all the things that god has done from genesis all the way through revelation this is our praise as we continue to tell the world all that god has done for us in christ jesus thanks for spending the morning with us talk to you again next week